Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. Well, we're in this uh, series on the book of Luke. And as I keep saying, for the benefit of people who are here for the first time, new people, I'm not going through it verse by verse by verse. It would take too long and be in it for years. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm going, uh, each week I take the next chapter. Today we're up to chapter nine. And I just pick one thing of that chapter. I preach on it, move to the next uh, chapter. And there's lots of things that, I, that, that are left unsaid and unpreached. I mean, just in Luke chapter nine, there's probably 10 or 11 of those subheading sections. And each one of them could be a message we're going to leave them all behind, and that just means that over the next decades, if I ever want, I can come back to the book of Luke, right? There's just too much in the Word of God to get to anyway uh, in one lifetime in terms of, of preaching through it. So I just have to pick, and it's, and it's actually a lot of fun, and I get to pray every week and say, Lord, which one of these things do you want me to preach on? And so this morning, I'm going to read you two sections, but I'm only going to preach on the last one. I'm going to read you uh, chapter 9, verses 23 to 26, about taking up your cross and following Jesus which then sets up the second portion. I'm going to read you the last uh, six verses, I believe it is, of the chapter uh, where Jesus talks about the cost of following him again. And then we're, we're, uh, we're going to look at what Jesus is saying because there's some hard sayings in there. And I love that. I love the Gospels. I love the untamed Word of God and the untamed Jesus. And we read these things and we go, how on earth can he say that? And then we find out that he loves us tremendously and that he is good and that his words are life. So we start in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. And Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So that's the cost of following Jesus. And that sets up this next part, and this is where we're going to spend the message is three short conversations that Jesus has with three would-be disciples. And as they were going along, so verse 57, we pick it up again. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I love that, right? Just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I'm in, Jesus. And Jesus said, well, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is like, I know you'd like to follow me if we were sleeping in the Hilton every night, but we're not. And uh, verse 59, to another he said, follow me. This time it's Jesus calling him. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, which seems like a, quite a reasonable request. Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What on earth are we supposed to do with that? Any of you who's gone to a, a family funeral in the last year, you, you just lost in that passage, right? Like that, I mean, well, how can Jesus not let a guy go to a funeral, right? Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, these are some hard passages, yes? These are hard passages. Deny yourself, take up your cross, uh, not letting a guy go see his dad's funeral, uh, not letting another guy go and say goodbye to his family. What on earth does this mean? And isn't it hard not to feel just a little bit guilty whenever we read these or hear these passages preached? Is it, is it true? Like, can you read? I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe it's just me. But whenever in my life, you know, you, you go over these passages in your devotions 
and you're sitting in your little comfy chair and you got your, your warm cup of coffee and your, your journal out and you're all comfortable, maybe some worship music playing, and then you read, take up your cross and follow me and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And doesn't it just make you feel a little like, oh my goodness, right? And, uh, and then Jesus says to uh, one guy, you can't go to your father's funeral. He says to another guy, you can't go and say goodbye to your parents. And most of us are going to go and hang out with family and have a big meal after this service. Isn't it true? Later this afternoon. And it just feels a little bit like, are we really picking up our crosses and following Jesus? Because it sure seems pretty extreme here, the call, if you actually want to follow Jesus, it seems pretty extreme. And specifically, it seems pretty extreme on the family side of things. Isn't that true? In all three conversations, we've got conversations about the home and the family. One guy wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, I actually can see through your motives. I don't have a home, and you're not going to want to follow me, because you're going to have to leave your home to follow me. And another guy, again, it's the funeral. It's an important family event. Another guy, it's just saying goodbye to his family. It seems like Jesus is picking specifically on the family and saying that a truly spiritual person, if you're a truly spiritual person here today, if you really want to follow Jesus, then picking up your cross and following Jesus means you got to, in many ways, turn your back on this kind of impediment to true spiritual, spirituality, which is your parents and your spouse and your kids, and you've got to follow Jesus and you've got to go and do more ministry. It certainly seems like that is what Jesus is teaching in this passage. And I know that I feel like in many church and conference settings, it is that zealous speakers, or maybe overzealous speakers, have sometimes preached these passages in a way that lays a cloud of guilt on anyone who enjoys being with their family, who loves their family. And it's like we got to leave our families behind in order to do the ministry. And then if you and I would listen, really listen to Jesus, if we would really surrender our whole lives to Jesus and say, Jesus, we'll do anything you say, the, the sense is from this passage that he would call us, leave the comfort of your family. Leave, you know, don't, you're spending too much time with them. You've got to get out there and you've got to go and do more ministry to other people. Now, if that is what Jesus is saying, by the way, he's the son of God. He's the one who made the universe. And so if that is what he's saying, then he has the words of life and we must obey. Is that not true? I mean, if that is what, whatever Jesus is saying in these passages, what, you know, as hard as it may be, whatever he's saying, he's the son of God. He's the one that, that made us. Whatever he's saying, he has the keys to life and we will obey. But the thing is, I just wonder, though, if we've misunderstood these passages over the years. And I feel like they've been mistaught sometimes in zeal. And I feel like sometimes there's, a, there's kind of an foreboding sense of guilt. that cre it's, it's almost sometimes in our zeal to preach these passages sometimes. I feel like we've sometimes created an unhealthy culture in terms of what is the relationship between ministry and family. And we've caused people to feel guilty who perhaps shouldn't. So I want to find out what Jesus really is saying in these passages. How many of you would like to know what Jesus is really saying in these passages? I would like to know. Because whatever it is, we're going to obey, right? And in order to do that, I want us first to just take a little tour of the scriptures. Because it's one thing to look in these passages and say, well, it sure looks like Jesus thinks we've got to leave our families behind in order to do more ministry for him. Okay? But if, to find out what he's really saying, I want us to look at the Bible. And the first thing we've got to do is we've got to take a little tour of the Bible. And we need to get a theology, a biblical theology of the family. Okay? Get a theology of family. Who invented the family? And what are God's purposes for the family? And then we can come back to Luke 9 and see what is Jesus getting at here. And so 
we start with the creation of human beings. If we're going to get a theology of family and all that, we should start with beginnings. And if you're going to start with beginnings in the Bible, you have to start at the beginning. And that's Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then, of course, a few verses later, so God creates people. And a few verses later, it says that God loves what he created. It says here, and God saw everything that he has made, had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, this is really important. First of all, just to start, this is, I, I, I never tire of coming back to this point. And I've said it many times before, and I'll say it many, many times again in, in, if, you know, for the rest of my life that I'm preaching, is that there is no spiritual and non-spiritual for God. God made his creation, this physical universe, the dirt and the trees and us people and animals, and he loves it all. He looked at the creation. He doesn't go, you know, there's prayer and there's ministry and there's Bible reading. That's the stuff I love. And this other worldly stuff is the stuff that gets in, w- in the way of the stuff that I really love. Absolutely not. It was God's idea to make this physical earth, and he loves it. He loves the dirt, he loves the work, he loves music, he loves play, he loves human beings. He made the earth, he made the universe, he made physicality and dirt, and he said, this is very good. Not just good, but very good. So we do not serve a God who has spiritual things, and would you quit doing all these earthly things so you can do the more spiritual things? God created the earth, and he loved it, all right? He loved it. Now, He called it very good, but we know when we get to chapter 2 that there was one thing yet that was not yet good, and something wasn't good, right? So if we go to chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone, I will make a him, a helper, fit for him. So God makes the earth and the universe, and it's physical, and it's earthy, and he says, I love it. And he makes Adam, and he says, this is amazing, okay? But then there's something not amazing, and that is that Adam is alone. Now, there's something really important here that I want you to recognize right off the bat. I want you to notice that it does not say Adam said it was not good. Now, no doubt Adam didn't think it was good either. I mean, he, he will have been lonely and he didn't have companionship. So no, no doubt Adam will have been thinking something's missing here. But I want you to notice here in Genesis 2, it does not say God made the earth and he made Adam and God said it was very good and then Adam said, I'm lonely, it's not good. I want you to notice it's not that it's not good from Adam's point of view, even though no doubt it was not good from Adam's point of view. I want you to notice it's not good from God's point of view. God made the earth and God made Adam And God looks at the earth, he says, I love this creation, I love Adam, but I don't like it that Adam is alone. I don't like it. It's not Adam complaining, it's God saying in his heart, saying, I don't like it that Adam's alone, okay? So he's going to fix it. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, so this was the, the first surgery with anesthesia, right at the beginning, and closed up its place with flesh, Right? And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, and I thought Dr. Doug Weiss did a really good job of this when he was here last, uh, last fall in September. And he talked about what was the final act of creation, Okay. And the final act of creation is what we see here. 
The final act of creation is marriage. God makes the earth. God makes Adam. Okay? It's all really good, but it's not complete yet. And then the final thing is he makes marriage, and now he rests. Okay? Now, this is really, really, really important. Again, God did not make marriage as a concession to Adam. Adam was complaining, oh, I'm so lonely. And finally, God says, fine, you can get married. And then Jesus comes along in Luke 9 and says, but if you were really spiritual, you'd leave all that family stuff behind and come and do ministry for me. That is not what the Bible teaches. God invented marriage because God likes marriage. God invented marriage and family because it was God's idea. And God said, I like it. And this is my creation. And this is what spirituality looks like is it includes things like marriage. And of course, people who are, who are not married, they're not less than nothing like that. That's not what Genesis is saying. That's not what the Bible is saying. But marriage is a really good part of creation. It's excellent. It's and family and all that sort of stuff really Really good. Now, this is so important. We have to keep this, and I'm going to show you this. Actually, I'm going to carry this theology down to the New Testament, but there's actually one more thing. I just want to look at one more thing. I'm kind of jumping around a little bit. I just want to do this because it's hard to come back to this if I don't do it now. Um, I just want to notice one thing here. There, there is a, a line in here, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. This is, this is important because I, I feel like sometimes in conferences and messages when people talk about leaving your family to to follow Jesus, I feel like sometimes there's confusion. We use the word family to mean a couple of different things. And I feel like sometimes we have millions of Christians sitting in churches and in conferences around North America, and people get up and they preach Luke 9 in this radical way, and people, are feel, and people with a spouse and kids at home are feeling like they're called to leave their spouse and kids at home and go out and do more ministry. And because conference speakers will say, you got to leave your family in order to do ministry. And they'll say, Abraham left his family to follow the call of God. And look at all these missionaries that left their family to follow the call of God. Well, amen. Abraham was called to leave his family to, to follow God's calling. But he didn't leave his wife at home, did he? Okay? So I want to just divide here a little bit. Yes, there is certainly biblical precedent for leaving your, your parents and your brothers and sisters and, and things like that. Because God's calling you out somewhere. And many, many missionaries and biblical characters, uh, you, know, o- you know, over the centuries have been called away from their extended family. But then we have people sitting with a spouse and kids at home feeling like God's calling them away from that. They should be doing more ministry and less of this, less spiritual stuff at home. And that is, that is not what the Bible is talking about. And in fact, if we go now to the New Testament, I want to show you the priority of marriage and family within what it means to be a spiritual person, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we're just going to follow right out of Genesis 1 and 2, where we see that God's the one who invented it. And we're going to move right into the New Testament and see if the New Testament repeats this. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read you one verse, and then, but then, and then I'm going to talk about it for a bit, and I'm going to show you the rest of the passage, just so you can see I'm not taking this one verse out of, out of context. Paul says this, what does the New Testament teach us about the relationship between family and ministry? And again, the reason I'm doing this is because Luke 9 seems, it seems like Jesus is putting the family down and ministry up. Okay, but what, is it, what does Paul say here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25? He says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, now that is really, really important. Okay, and I've talked about this before. I'm going to talk about it again because we have to do things in the Bible's order. I want you to notice what it does not say in this passage. It does not say, Husbands love the church, and God will take care of your wives. Do you notice it doesn't say that? 
It does not say husbands love the church and God will take care of your wives. So you just go out, you can neglect your family because what God really wants you doing is the real ministry and then he'll take care of your family. That is not what it says. It says you have a responsibility and I have a responsibility. Now, of course, it's not, a, it's not an either or. It's not that we should love our families and not love the church. It's, it's a both and. But there's certainly an order here. And God says, you love your wives and I will love the church. And of course, we should love both. But our love for ministry should come out of, this is the thing, there's an order to what's happening here. We should, we should serve, and we're going to get to that in this message yet. We should serve, we should do ministry, we should love the church. But what sometimes happens is people, for unhealthy reasons, you see them, they're out there doing all kinds of ministry, busy, 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 and they think they're doing God's work, to the, and, they're, and they're neglecting their family, and they think they're doing God's work, and they're thinking God's pleased, and God is not pleased. Because they're not doing it from God's order. They're doing it out of unhealthy places inside. They're, they're seeking success in unhealthy ways. They're seeking maybe approval. They're seeking all kinds of things, maybe things that holes that were left, you know, trying to, to impress someone like their, their dad when they were younger or whatever it was. They're seeking to fill a hole. They're not doing it in God's way. And God says, the kind of person who can bear fruit Yes, we should all do ministry, but the kind of person who can bear fruit in ministry is the kind of person who's an expert in loving their spouse at home. You know, people sometimes have a vision for ministry and work. Do you have a vision for loving your spouse at home? Because Paul says here, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, by the way, how much does Christ love the church? Do you have a vision for living, loving your spouse and family that way? He gave himself up for her. Do you have a vision for loving your spouse. Do you ever pray about it? I want to love my spouse. I want to love my kids the way Jesus loves the church. That's a pretty incredible, you know, sacrificial vision. And the kind of person that has a vision like that in the home is the kind of person then when they go out and do ministry is now the kind of person that can bear a lot of fruit. But the kind of person that thinks for unhealthy reasons, I'm going to go out and just be busy, busy, busy with ministry because I feel guilty because it, maybe it's been preached to me wrong, and I'm misunderstanding some of these passages of Jesus, and I think the, the call is, I'm worldly if I'm home-loving my family, so i got to be out busy every single night of the week. That kind of a person actually, they might be well-meaning, and God says, oh, I love you, and I love your attempts to please me, but you're missing it. And you can't ultimately long-term bear fruit out of that kind of, out of getting the, the order wrong biblically. Does that make sense? Really important. Well, let me read you the rest of this passage just so you can see, I'm not taking this one verse out of context. Verse 26, that Jesus, so this is Jesus. He gave himself for the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So these are all the ways that Jesus loves the church. In the same way, in the same way. So Paul goes on at length. This is the way Jesus loves the church. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He just ties it back again. This is how much Jesus loves the church. Husbands, that's a vision for you, how you love your wife. Husbands should love their wives as their bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. All right? So important. Therefore, a man, and now he goes back to Genesis 2, which is where we just were, which made me feel really good when I was doing this message. Because I'm like, I must be on the right track. Because I started in Genesis 2, and then I went to Paul, and then I found Paul went back to Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I should just, before we move on, I just want to take one time out here for just a moment, okay? Because I'm making a point here about the order. 
that we want to, we, we have to, again, it's not that you don't do ministry. It's a both end. It's not an either or. There's no question. Jesus loves the church. We need to love the church and serve her. Absolutely, 100%. But the point is we want to have a vision and coming out of, we're loving in the home and we're becoming, becoming the kind of people who love our spouses and our kids. And out of that, we become the kind of people who when we serve can, can bear fruit. Now, I just want to say something, though. You might be sitting there and you might be thinking, well, does this disqualify me from marriage because you're in a bad marriage, let's say. And I just want to say this, okay? So everything that I'm saying here is true about becoming the kind of person who can bear fruit for God. But I also want to say at the same time that having a bad marriage doesn't disqual automatically disqualify you from ministry. And when I was praying about that, I'm so glad, you know, I'm, I feel like the, in this message I'm walking a tightrope because I've got to make sure I don't fall off unbalanced in either way. And in fact, someone got a picture of, uh, of, of me walking a tightrope just this last week. They applied it to something else. But as I was preaching last night, I realized I'm walking a tightrope, so I've got to make sure I don't fall off on either side. But it's certainly true that a bad marriage does not disqualify you from ministry, even though everything Paul is saying here is absolutely true, that if you want to bear fruit, you've got to be the kind of person that's pouring into your spouse. Okay? But I asked God, I asked the Lord, I said, well, do you have any examples in Scripture of, of someone who had a bad marriage that you used? And, and right away... He gave me the prophet Hosea, okay? Do you all, do you all know who the, the prophet Isaiah, Hosea is? Not Isaiah, Hosea, okay? Doesn't look, you know, some of you look like you don't really know. He, he actually wrote a book of the Bible. Before you die, you want to read it. You don't want to get to heaven and meet him. And he says, hey, I wrote a book of the Bible. You didn't read it? And uh, so it's in there. It's in the minor prophets. You find it, you read it before you get to heaven, right? So uh, anyway, Hosea had a, had a wife and uh, she was an adulteress and she constantly was having affairs on him, okay? They, didn't, they did not have a good marriage. And God used Hosea anyway. I mean, he wrote a book of the Bible. He's a prophet. In fact, God used his marriage as a prophetic picture for the nation of Israel. So certainly, having a bad marriage doesn't automatically disqualify you from bearing fruit. And of course, there are many kinds of bad marriages, right? You might be in a bad marriage, but you're working on it. Well, amen, we're all working on something. And none of us has a perfect marriage, so if perfect marriage is, is the prerequisite to doing ministry, nobody ever does ministry. So you might be in a broken place, but you're growing in your marriage. Well, great, you can also grow in ministry at the same time. Absolutely, that's amazing. Or you might be in a bad marriage, and, and you want to work on it, but your spouse doesn't want to work on it. That actually happens. We, I see lots of cases like that. Where you've got one person that really wants to go for it, and one person that doesn't. That's not your fault. That doesn't disqualify you from serving the Lord either. Or you might be married to a spouse who doesn't love the Lord and they resent you doing ministry and, and you may at some point have to draw a line. They might say, I don't like it when you serve. I don't like it when you go to church. And you may have to draw a line and say, look, I love Jesus and I'm going to love you. I'm totally going to love you, but be, me being gone a couple of times a week because I love my Lord and I want to be in community and all that sort of stuff, is that something I'm going to do? You might have situations like that that doesn't disqualify you, from, disqualify you from marriage. The point is you shouldn't do ministry instead of loving your spouse. That's, what, that's, what, that's the point point is you shouldn't do ministry at the neglect of your spouse and children at home. That's the point. You should love them and be an expert at loving them, and out of them will come a good, a good ministry and fruitfulness. Well, let's go back to Luke 9, because it's not just marriage. It's the way that Jesus just, he seems to not care at all about honoring one's parents. I mean, we look at that passage again to another. He said, follow me, but, he, but the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the, the kingdom of God. It certainly seems, it's not just the marriage side. It just seems like Jesus doesn't care at all about honoring your parents. Is that true? When we read this passage, does this just mean 
You know, does take up your cross and follow Jesus mean you, you don't ever go to family events anymore? I mean, for some of you, you're signing up right now. Hey, I want to take up my cross. <laughs> I'm taking up my cross, family. I'm not coming to the Christmas gathering this year. Luke 9, read it, right? Um, is that what Jesus is saying? He's saying, yeah, don't worry about honoring your parents. Don't worry about spending time with your parents. That's for worldly people. When you leave the world behind, you're going to not care about that kind of stuff, and you're going to just go out there, and you're going to do ministry. Is that what Jesus is saying? Let's take another quick tour of the scriptures, shall we? And let's see what the Bible says about honoring your parents. Because whatever the Bible says about honoring your parents, we have to realize Jesus is God, and, uh, and he wrote, so he wrote the Bible, he inspired the Bible. If we go back to Exodus chapter 20, we get the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments those are the big ten. Those are the ones God himself wrote with his finger in stone for Moses. And, uh, and so we know that Jesus isn't going to overturn anything in the Ten Commandments because Jesus wrote the Ten Commandments. His name just wasn't Jesus yet. And so this is what we read. Commandment number five of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So that's... That, that, you know, honor your father and mother wasn't something that humans invented because we were worldly. Like, God would have wished, hey, do more ministry. And humans were like, hey, we'd like to honor our parents. Fine, you can honor your parents. That's not how it came about. God said to people, he said, this is one of my top ten. You will honor your parents. And if you think Jesus doesn't care about it, Jesus actually, and I could show you other places, Paul repeats the same command in Ephesians chapter 6. But in Matthew chapter 15, there's a fascinating, uh, you know, interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for breaking this honor your parents' commandment. I'm going to show it to you, and then we're going to go back to Luke 9, okay? But basically, what's happening in the background of Matthew uh, chapter 15 is the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus and the disciples because they're not following their man-made rules for washing their hands. And so they criticize Jesus. And then Jesus just shoots right back. He says, you're going to talk to me about not following your man-made rules about washing hands? What about God's rules about honoring your parents and how you guys break that commandment? Okay, let me show it to you. Matthew 15, verse 3, Jesus answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. So there you have it. Jesus cares about honoring your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. He throws that one in for good measure. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So here's what was going on, okay? Um, yeah, yeah, what you have to realize is the Pharisees were trying to get out of taking care of their parents in old age. In their greed and spirituality, they were trying to get out of it. And, and the thing you have to remember is, back in that day, you didn't have this whole... Uh, you know, social welfare system network taking care of people. You didn't have old age pension and, and, and social security and all these sorts of things where, where, you know, as we get elderly and retire, you know, we get paychecks in the mail and the, and the government is, is taking care of us, even if it's not much, but it's a little bit, right? In those days, they didn't have a system like that. So when you got old and couldn't take care of yourself, that was one of the reasons they were very motivated to have as many kids as they could, is you needed to have some kids around to take care of you. Otherwise, you were hooped. You were going to die in poverty. You were going to die of starvation. You needed your kids to take care of you, all right? What was happening, and Jesus is calling the Pharisees out on it, in their greed and over-spiritualization, 
What they were saying is, and, and I'm not going to get into all the details, but it's called Corban. They were taking, they, were, they thought they'd found a loophole in uh, the book of Leviticus that it, what they otherwise would have given to their parents to take care of their parents, they were holding back and saying, this is dedicated to the, to the temple treasury. And Jesus looks at them and says, so by the way, can you see the parallels to over-spiritualization, even what I'm talking about in this message? I'm going to neglect taking care of my parents and my money. I'm instead going to use it for ministry because that's more spiritual. And Jesus does not go to them, wow, you, you, that is so amazing. You've put God ahead of your parents. I just pat you on the back. Absolutely not. He says, you think you're so spiritual. You are breaking the very commandment of God. Now, the point wasn't that they shouldn't give to good, shouldn't give the temple. It's both and. Give to God what is God and to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God and God's and give to your parents what is needed there to take care of them. You should do both. Yes, you should tithe and be generous and all that sort of stuff, but you should also take care of your parents. And don't pretend you're doing ministry if you're not taking care of your parents, of your family responsibilities. And in fact, in Jewish culture in those days, the word honor, uh, when they talked about honoring your father and your mother, it was much more like when we think of honoring your parents, we just think of, of respect for them, it was much more than that. It, it actually included the idea of supporting them and taking care of them. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, you have not honored your father and your mother. Well, then what on earth are we to do with Luke chapter 9? Let's go back there. So we've seen in Scripture from the very beginning right through the New Testament, it is God who made marriage and family. It is God who lifts it up and says, I love this. I've made it. It is God who says, honor your parents. He loves it when we honor and take care of and cherish our families and our parents. So what on earth is Jesus doing in Luke 9? Saying, take up your cross and follow me. And follow me. And then he just seems to throw all that stuff out the window and say, leave your parents behind. Forget about a funeral. Don't say goodbye to them. All this sort of stuff. What's going on? Well, the first thing we have to talk about here, now I'm going to help you actually just understand the Bible in general. This is stuff that can apply to so many passages. One of the first thing you need to understand is the difference between general commands and specific commands to a, to a specific situation. Have you ever realized when you were reading your Bible that there are things in there that are general commands for absolutely everybody, and there are specific commands that were for a specific situation at a specific time? Is that not true? Okay. Now, clearly, I mean, when Jesus says to his disciples, you know, take a sword with you, does that mean every time we should leave our houses or go do ministry, we should take a sword with us? Just, some of you are wondering. <laughs> wow, we have a long way to go. I got a lot to teach you guys. No, 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 no. You don't need to take a sword with you. That's a specific command. Now, you say, how am I going to know? It's usually pretty obvious. <laughs> I don't see any of you. None of you brought a sword with you to church today. Kids, men, oh, I'm serving today. I've got to bring my sword. You intuitively know. You know. Yeah, it's easy. You look at this passage. Yeah, this passage inspires a little bit of vague sense of guilt that maybe I should be leaving my family behind. But we all still go to our family funerals. It's true. So somehow we all intuitively know when Jesus says, love your neighbor, you know, as yourself, when he says, forgive your enemies and be kind to them, we know that's for everybody. We just, we just know it. And when we read that he says to this man, you can't go to your father's funeral, we intuitively know that this is not a general command for everybody that funerals are not good, okay? It's general versus specific command for a specific situation. So what you have to understand is that something's going on in this situation that we don't know. And again, it's one of those, you know, there's something in this guy's motives um, there's something he, we're not getting the whole story. Is he even telling the whole story? But he's, he, what, whatever this is happening here is, it's not about him going home and being with his, 
his, his, his father or his fun- the funeral or something like that. Something bigger is going on. Jesus sees through it. He sees it's an excuse, and he's calling him out. He's not saying honoring your, your parents is, is not. Now, of course, what is that thing? And this is one of those many places in the Bible where I would just love a bit more information. How about you? Like, why wouldn't you just write a little bit more there? And the Holy Spirit kind of laughs. <laughs> I'm enjoying this, right? And of course, we have theories. I'll give you a couple of theories just so you can see kind of the, the kind of thinking scholars do. But, but a couple of theories, what could be going on here? Uh, one theory that many scholars uh, hold to is that uh, actually this man's father isn't dead yet. And what he's actually asking to do is, Lord, I'll come and do ministry with you after my father dies. So I'd like to go home and be with him until he dies. But who knows how long that could be? Months? Years? And Jesus is calling him out. He's saying, you're just trying to get out of ministry. Follow me now. Okay? So that's one possibility. And it, and it certainly would hold true, you know, based on customs and how they, they spoke about, you know, their parents' death and stuff in, in, in those days. There's another theory, though. And again, these are just theories. We don't know. I'm not preaching this as gospel truth because we don't know. But another theory, and this one seems to make a lot of sense to me, is um, has to do with what was called, it was a practice called second burial, okay? And second burial was a, was a practice that had become quite common in, in the time of Jesus. It started in, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a few places where we read that they would gather the bones of their ancestors. So, for example, Joseph, if you read Genesis 49 and 50, Joseph tells his, his sons, he says, when you, when you guys come out of Egypt, I want you to gather my bones and take them with you. Okay, Jacob said the same thing. And, uh, and so there's, there's four or five different places in the Old Testament where you'll read about people saying, take my bones with you when you leave. And what happened over time is it, it kind of became this sort of common practice in Judaism. Not everybody did it, but some people did. It was common enough. And what they would do is the moment a person would die, they would immediately bury them or whatever, in, not bury them necessarily, some of them were in tombs, but embalm, like do all the stuff that they do but they would immediately bury them. There'd be a seven-day period of intense mourning. And, that, and that's where, you know, everybody's together for seven days and it's really intense mourning. We don't do anything like that uh, in our culture. And after that, they would have a, a month, 30 days of less intense mourning. And then what they would do is they would let the body decompose for, you know, it usually would take about a year. And at the end of that, about a year, when the body had all decomposed, they would take, gather the bones. They would have a second ceremonial, ceremony called second burial. They would take the bones and put them in a box called an ossuary. So lots of Jews were doing this in the time of Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that practice in and of itself. The problem is that for some of them, and we have rabbinic writings from that time that show that this is what some of them were believing, some of them had, a doctrine had sprung up in the meantime in Jesus' day where some of them were beginning to believe that when the body decomposed, the person's sins were paid for that somehow the decomposing of the body was like a purgatory for the body, that once the flesh decomposed, the person's sins were gone, and now this person was right with God. And so the second burial would become this kind of celebration that this person is now right with God, which, of course, we all know, and Jesus certainly knew, that the decomposing of the body does nothing to atone for a person's sins. And so there's some scholars that believe that what this guy was actually asking to do is he wanted to go home, he wanted to have a few months at home, and then observe this second burial thing. And that's why Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. He's saying, well, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. This is a spiritually dead practice. And you've already been home to honor your, your father. You've already honored your parents. You've already been at the funeral, whatever it is. But this one, follow me. This one, follow me. Okay? So that's definitely a possibility. We don't know for sure. It certainly seems to make some sense. Whatever the case is, this is a specific command. 
and it's for a specific situation, and that's why Jesus is doing this. It's not because Jesus doesn't think honoring your parents is important. It's not because Jesus doesn't honor the family or that he thinks we should neglect our family in order to do ministry. So now I want to end this message because the question is, well, if these passages are just specific commands for specific situations, why do we even bother reading them? Why would Luke put them in a Bible? Like, if it's just specific commands for specific situations, if these passages here are just that and they have no application to us, why read them? Why preach about them? Is there no general principle that Luke is trying to get across to all of us? And the answer is absolutely yes, there is. There's no question Luke is trying to get across something for all of us. It's just not don't go to your parents' funerals, okay? So what is Luke's point in the context of this passage? What is the big point that Luke wants all of his readers to get for all time? And I'll tell you what it is, and there's not even a question about it. Luke wants us to get one point, and that is this. Jesus must be number one in our lives, even above our families. Jesus must be number one in our lives, even above our families. Now, the question is, though, what does that mean, right? What does that mean? Does that mean if I got a wife and kids at home, I should be busy doing ministry most nights of the week? That makes me spiritual? Absolutely not. Let me tell you, let me show you what that means. If you're, first of all, number one, if your family makes you choose between Jesus and them, you must pick Jesus every time. That's the first thing. Putting Jesus first in your life means if, now that's a big if, if your family makes you choose between them and Jesus, there's no question this passage teaches us we pick Jesus. We pick Jesus. Now this is really important to understand because Jesus is preaching in a very specific context. He knows he's not long away, he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die. His followers don't know that yet. He's been telling them, but they're not getting it through their thick skulls. Reminds me a little bit of us, right? Because there's a lot of things God tells us to and we don't get it through our thick skulls. He's telling them, I'm going to die, they're not hearing it. They think everything's going to be hunky-dory, he's going to set up his kingdom on, on earth and it's going to be amazing, okay? And they don't know he's going to die. They also don't know that after he dies, an intense persecution is going to break out and they are going to be intensely persecuted for following him. The persecution is going to be so intense that many of their own families will turn on them. And even the families that don't turn on them, out of pressure of what's happening around them, many of those families will disown them. And what Jesus is preparing them for is for a specific situation. And he is saying, if your families disown you or persecute you because of me, you choose me. You choose me. There's no question this passage is teaching that. By the way, this still happens in large swaths of the earth today. Did you know that? Places like India, you live in a, in a family that is very strictly Hindu, many of those families, and you accept Jesus, you're out of the family. There are many, many millions of Muslims getting saved every single year around the world. It's spectacular, miraculous what God's doing in the end times right now. In some of those places, giving your life to Jesus means your own family will feel so ashamed that one of their kids converted that your own family will try to kill you. In many other places, if they don't try to kill you, they will at the very least disown you. And there's no question, this passage teaches, if your family makes you choose between me and them, you choose me. We choose Jesus. Now here in Canada, things are not nearly that intense, thankfully. But there could be at a lesser level, you could have a spouse that says, I don't want you going to church and following Jesus. You could have a family that says, you know, that kind of pushes against that. We don't want you getting into this Jesus stuff and going to church. Then you must say to them, respectfully, yes. Lovingly, yes. I will continue to love you and I love you and I respect you. 
but I will go to church and I will follow Jesus. You may have a spouse that says, I'll leave you if you keep going to church. I'll leave you if you keep serving the church. You tell him or her, whatever it is, you say, I'm gonna love you. I'm gonna continue to love you, but I must follow Jesus. And if you leave me, that's your choice. That's not, that's not mine. That's your choice. But Jesus says in this passage, we pick Jesus over our families. Now, here's the thing, though. Isn't it true, though, for the vast majority of us, thankfully, here this morning, most of us, our families don't make, uh, make us make that choice. Isn't that true? And this is where I think this passage has been so mistaught over the years in many North American churches. Zealous speakers get up and go, you got to put Jesus above your families. And then they tell stories of people around the earth who've had to lose their families for following Jesus. And then a bunch of people whose families are good feel like the only way for me to follow Jesus is for me to leave my family behind and neglect them so I can do ministry. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He doesn't like the situation where your family makes you choose. But if they do make you choose, you pick him. But then in the case where your family doesn't make you choose, there's no point in just sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice. I gotta neglect my family to follow Jesus. No, 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 no. Genesis 2, Ephesians 5. He invented the family. He actually likes the family. So how do you apply this passage in a family, like what most of us would have, where you're not forced to choose between Jesus and them. I'll tell you what we do. In order to put Jesus first in a family that doesn't make you choose, this is how you put Jesus first. For most of us, putting Jesus first does not mean leaving our families behind. It means ministering Jesus in our families and with our families. It means ministering Jesus in our families and with our families. And you might think, are you making that up? I'm glad you asked. I have one final passage for the end of this message. This is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 7 or 8. I forget where it ends. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So here's another passage. God must be number one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your might. Now, what does it look like to put God first? Does it look like Leave your family at home and get out and do more ministry. Well, let's find out. Verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So cherish his commandments in your heart. Now look at the verse 7. Here it is. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You want to know what it looks like to put God first when you have a family? He does not say... Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, because you love him so much, leave your kids at home and go and love other people. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Put him first. And what is that going to look like? It means you're going to go home and you're going to teach your kids about God. You're going to bring God into your family. You want to put God first with your family and your family doesn't make you choose between them and God? Then bring God into your family. That's how you put him first. That's how you take up your cross and follow him is you bring God into your family. And this is what I think. I think where North America, I don't think North American Christian families have gotten it wrong in loving their families. I think sometimes, you know, missionaries and conference speakers have made people feel guilty because they love their family and love to spend time with their family. I don't think North American Christians have gotten it wrong in loving their families. I think they've gotten it wrong in not bringing God into their families. You should love your family. You should spend time with your kids. You should have a vision for investing in your spouse and loving them. 
Absolutely amen. And you should never feel guilty about that. You should, what you should have along with that is you should have a vision for bringing God into that family. Yes, you should do sports with them and yes, you should watch movies with them and you should do some of that fun stuff. And no, you shouldn't only do that. You should also model for them serving in the church. But you should invest in them but you shouldn't only do those things. You should also have a vision for bringing God into your family. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk about them when you rise and when you lie down and when you walk along the road. Have a vision, a spiritual vision for your family. So I have a challenge to leave you with. Here's the challenge. Make a simple plan. And I, have to, I have to reiterate simple. Make a simple spiritual action plan for your family. And what I mean is not unrealistic and not unreasonable. This is not about guilt. This is not about trying to, you know, you've never prayed ever with your family before, and now we're going to make it six nights a week. It won't work. It won't work. So try one thing. What if you took one step? What if you sat down as couples, if you're married, and you, you just got together and you just prayed? What's one thing we could do that we could start to do, a habit we could form, one simple thing that we could do where we could bring God more into this family, where we could bring, have, begin to have a spiritual vision for this family? And by the way, if you're here today and you're single, you are not less than. You are not out of this. This message isn't, isn't just for married and, and parents. You have a family. You have friends. And that's all part of God's good creation. And he likes, the, he likes the variety. Some are married, some are not. Some have kids, some don't. Some are old, some are young. He loves the variety. But you can go home and you can have a spiritual action plan. Say, Lord, what's something I can do when I'm with my parents, my brothers and sisters, or with my family friends? What's something I can do to bring God more into my family relationships? That's something you can do as well. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would lift the cloud of guilt that sometimes sits over us. Sometimes that we feel guilty for having family. Sometimes that we feel guilty for spending time with our families. Like we feel like there's more spiritual things we could be doing. Would you lift that cloud off of us? Would you help us to live Genesis 1 and 2 that your creation is very good? That we love the world you've made and we love marriage and we love family and we love friendships. But then Lord, would you help us to take small steps this week and this month. Lord, that we want to bring you, make you number one, and actually bring you into those relationships. Not to over-spiritualize, not to feel condemned, but to bring our joyful love for you into our families. And out of that, Lord, the ministry we're going to do as a church, as our families are strong and our kids are raised and discipled in the home, Lord, I'm just looking forward to seeing what you're going to do. Would you take these words, plant them in our lives, and may they grow and bear much fruit. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.